On the latest episode of Real Health with me, Carl Henry, I'm delighted to be joined by cardiologist Dr. Paddy Barrett, chatting all things cardiovascular disease. The way I look at this is that the the two statistics that everyone should really be aware of is cardiovascular disease is the leading cause of death globally and in most developed nations, but it's also the most preventable. 90% of it can be prevented at an early stage if you just follow the right steps and formula. So I look at it as a, a scary opportunity. As ever available on all podcast platforms. Listen and follow the Left Wing Rugby podcast with me, Will Slattery and Luke Fitzgerald. As far as I can see, I always want to get in the Irish team. And that should be every young player's dream and ambition in this country. And if you're playing in a place where you're not going to get the opportunities in the big games, that they're the ones that get you picked. They are the ones, the Champions Cup games are the ones that get you picked. You need to be playing in a team and starting in a team for those games. It's as simple as that if you want to play in the Irish team. Every week on Apple, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. It appears that she was confronted at the property and for some inexplicable reason, she ran downhill. She came off the roadway and crossed a field and was just in the process of trying to get over a a kind of a fence when it appears that the barbed wire caught and snagged on her clothing and delayed her just long enough for her assailant to catch up with her. Today on the Indo-Daily, 25 years since the murder of Sophie Toscan Duplantier. I was in the newsroom that day when the call came through that a body had been found in West Cork. And I wasn't covering the case, but I think very few people in the in the room at that time would have realised that 25 years later, we're still talking about that ongoing murder investigation. I'm Fiannan Sheehan, and today I'm talking to Ralph Regal, Southern correspondent of the Irish Independent, and author of A Dream of Death on Ireland's most notorious unsolved murder. What was your first involvement with with covering this case, do you remember? I started doing news stories about this one, Fanon, in early 97, which would have been just a couple of weeks after the first arrest. What had happened to Sophie Toscan Duplantier? Um, What we knew at the time was that she had apparently been pursued from her holiday home. She lived um, at a holiday home at Tourmore, which is just outside Skull. Beautiful place but very, very remote. I mean, it's accessed by um, essentially a cul-de-sac. It's a mountain road. You go quite some distance from um, like what you'd call a secondary boreen to access this property. Panoramic views over the mountainside, but very remote and very lonely. It appears that she was confronted at the property and for some inexplicable reason, she ran downhill. Had she run uphill, she would have gone to the only other occupied house in the immediate vicinity. And that would have been the home of Shirley Foster at the time. But Sophie ran downhill. It appears that she came off the roadway and crossed a field and was just in the process of trying to get over a a kind of a fence when it appears that the barbed wire caught and snagged on her clothing and delayed her just long enough for her assailant to catch up with her. And she was then beaten to death in the most horrific of circumstances. There were a number of different factors which which made the case very high profile. The very fact that it was a woman, that it was so close to Christmas, the level of violence that was involved. I mean, savage violence to the point where I remember one detective saying to me that it, it, it had all the appearances as if the killer had tried to eradicate 
any point of recognition in her face. Um, a rock had been used, a heavy block had been used, um, and such was the level of force that the actual indentation of Sophie's head was left in the ground. And of course, the other thing that made everyone acutely aware of the profile of the case was the fact that who Sophie was, that she was um, the, the wife of one of the best known film producers in France, Daniel Toscan de Plantier. And of course, Daniel Toscan de Plantier wasn't just the head of one of the most influential French cultural organisations. He was also a very good friend of such individuals as Jacques Chirac. So there was a significant interest and profile in the case overseas as well as within Ireland. There's a number of, of very sad aspects to the story. Um, she wasn't supposed to have been in Ireland on her own. She had asked a friend to travel with her, but the friend had a personal commitment, so wasn't able to travel. And Sophie considered um, West Cork to be her kind of her dream, her dream hideaway. Her It was a place that she connected with on a very deep emotional level. She loved the wildness of the countryside. She was very into poetry. She loved walks over the, the, the kind of the windswept hills and cliffs in the area. And she made a lot of very good friends. So she decided to go ahead with that trip herself just for a couple of days. She was actually due to fly back to France on the 23rd. But sometime on the evening of the 22nd, early hours of the, tw the 23rd of December, someone called to the property. The exact circumstances of what happened aren't known. We don't know. Did the person try and break into the house? Did Sophie disturb someone? Was there a call? Was there some kind of a verbal exchange? But she appears to have fled for her life, was caught and then was subjected to this horrendous beating. And then, of course, that triggered what, what remains one of, if not the biggest uh, murder investigation in the South. At the time, would you have predicted in those late days of 96, early days of, of 97 that we would still be talking about this this unsolved murder 25 years later? No, I have to say I wouldn't. I mean, all the indications at the time was a lot of the Guardi that I spoke to, certainly in 97, were quite confident. Um, they believed all they needed was one forensic break, one little piece of, of good fortune in terms of forensic evidence. And that's one of the most extraordinary elements of this case is that these type of, of, of crimes are usually solved by forensics. Something that will put an individual at the scene that didn't happen in this particular case. There were no fingerprints. There was no DNA. No DNA was still in its infancy, but there wasn't any DNA per se to identify. The one piece of DNA that was found has never been identified from the scene. There were no usable fingerprints. Uh, and really, it was as if the killer had vanished into thin air because of the remoteness of the site. There were no eyewitnesses uh, initially. What also came into play was the fact that there's no CCTV cameras to try and place a car near the scene to identify a license plate. So it, it quickly emerged that while the Guardi were confident, a lot of the material that they thought would help them never actually transpired to be there. I think they put an awful lot of hope in the fact that there was material found under the fingernails of Sophie Toscan de Plantier. There was a hair found as well. And it, it, it turned out that the DNA was her own and the hair fibres in the hand were from her own head. And it appears as if she had grasped a couple of her hairs in her agonised last few minutes that it actually wasn't hairs from the person who had attacked her. So here we are 25 years on. There have been a, a, a number of documentaries in the last 12, 18 months yep. about, about the case. 
And the Gardaí are currently looking at whether to initiate a, a cold case review. So where, where to your mind, is the investigation at at this stage? I think, it, according to the guards, officially it's live, open and active. And what has happened in the last couple of days, a team of veteran detectives are in West Cork uh, at the behest of Commissioner Drew Harris. And what they're doing is they're reviewing potential new evidence in the case. Now, since those two documentaries, there's been a total of five books either published or will be published. There's been innumerable specials by televisions, newspapers, radios, stations on the case. So they're looking at new material that has been brought to light as a result of this kind of forensic um, media interest in the case. And they're going to determine, does that warrant ongoing fresh investigations or is that conducive to a cold case review? Now, what's interesting about a cold case review, there's already been two. In terms of the ongoing investigation, um, in, in, 20, in 2000, 2001, the Director of Public Prosecutions ruled that there was not enough evidence, there was no basis for taking a prosecution at that time. Uh, by 2001, uh, Ian Bailey, who's a Manchester-born freelance journalist, poet, New Age gardener, law student, he had been arrested twice by Gardaí. He had been arrested in early 97 and in early 1998. On both occasions, he was questioned and on both occasions, he was released without charge. Now, Mr. Bailey has always maintained his innocence. He claims that there have been attempts to frame him for the crime. And earlier this year, he wrote both to the Taoiseach, to the Minister for Justice, and has written several times to Commissioner Harris looking for a cold case review because in his opinion that cold case review will fully exonerate him and show that he should never have been um, considered as a viable suspect in the case. Yeah, the, the self-professed chief suspect he has he has described uh, him, himself and the investigation, it, it, it does seem to, to, to still centre around a, a lack of other suspects and the, the original evidence, uh, forensic evidence at the scene not being all that substantial. Yeah, and I mean, for a number of different reasons, as you say, I mean, Mr. Bailey has been at the centre of this for a number of different reasons. First of all, was the fact that he was arrested twice. He was released without charge on both occasions. He gave an interview voluntarily himself um, back after the first arrest, which put him kind of front and centre in terms of publicity. In 2003, he took eight very high profile defamation actions or libel actions against Irish and British newspapers. And um, those actions were largely lost. I think he won two of the actions. He lost the others. Um, he appealed that to the High Court. Um, following the High Court um, appeal, he took an action for wrongful arrest um, against the state. There was a complaint made to the Garda Ombudsman uh, Shikona Commission. That was one of the biggest investigations ever handled by GSOC. And then on top of that, once the DPP had said in 2000 and 2001 that there wasn't going to be a prosecution, the family in France, and of course we must remember that they're front and centre of all of this, they've not seen justice for their loved one. And um, there was a very effective lobbying group um, called ASOF, which was set up in France. And that was basically family members and friends of the Bouniols, the Duplantiers, uh, the Gazos, and they lobbied to try and get an investigation launched in France. That led to a seven-year investigation under a magistrate called Patrick Gachon. He 
compiled a report which recommended a prosecution that was ratified by another French magistrate. And in uh, May of 2019, uh, before the Court of Assizes in Paris, uh, during a one week long hearing, uh, Mr. Bailey was prosecuted by the French in absentia. He refused to attend the proceedings. He described the proceedings as a show trial and a mockery of justice. But after that one week prosecution, he was convicted um, of the killing and sentenced to 25 years in prison. Ralph, Ian Bailey, did you know him before the the murder? He was a, he was a freelance reporter down and down in in the deepest part of West Cork. Yeah, no, I didn't actually. I only got to know him after the the, the whole event. And um, there was a couple of reporters on on papers had come across him. He had moved to Ireland. He's was born in Manchester, but he was actually brought up in Gloucester. And he had worked as a freelance journalist both in Gloucester and in Cheltenham and was very successful. I mean, he had worked for some of the biggest titles in the UK. He had supplied material to BBC Panorama, some of the very high profile BBC programmes. But for some reason, I think he just fell out of love with the whole freelance world in the UK. So he moved to Ireland about 1990, 1991, and he'd bounced around. He initially was living on a farm in Waterford. Then he came to West Cork, then he went to Wicklow, and then he came back to West Cork and really settled there. And would you describe him for us? Because people are, are are used to seeing a lot of him of him now. Yeah, uh, there's a hat and and a scarf, and it's still quite a bohemian image. Describe him back then. When, when I first met him, I mean, he was a strikingly handsome man. I mean, the best way I could describe it is he really looked like a Shakespearean leading actor. He's six foot four. He had raven black hair, which had grown quite long. He was into wearing like Aaron sweaters. So he had that kind of Jeremy Irons, Daniel Day-Lewis kind of look about him. A beautiful diction, very well-spoken man, really, really handsome uh, guy. And I suppose the contrast is to see him today, really. I mean, I know it's 25 years. That's a substantial period of time. But he looks so much much older than his 64 years. I mean, I was in Bantry District Court over the summer. He was convicted of drug driving, which is actually under appeal at the moment to the, the, the Circuit Court of Appeals. But he re- it really struck me that how old he had gotten. He almost shuffled into the court. He really did look like an old, old man. Where is he now? Reversing a small, he he got a job in a fish factory in West Cork, and while he was working there, he met a very accomplished Welsh Welsh artist called Jules Thomas, and they struck up a relationship. And he began living in her property. It's a place called the, the Prairie at Liscaha, which is just outside Skull, and that's where he had been based, and that's where he was living. Um, at the time of Sophie's murder in December of 1996. And to put that in context, we're not a million miles away from on the same side of, of, yeah. of Skull. Yeah, it's about maybe a mile, maybe two miles. Um, relatively close, very close if you're talking about as the crow flies. Um, and he, he had lived there. I mean, he was resident there at the time of his first arrest, the time of his second arrest. And he has lived there really up until earlier this year when the relationship uh, with Miss Thomas ended. Um, as I said, she's an artist. She's originally from Wales, very accomplished. A lot of her work has been exhibited in wildlife centres and heritage centres across Ireland. That relationship ended and Mr. Bailey moved out of the prairie. He has lived in a couple of different properties since. He's currently living uh, in the village of Glengariff 
And I spoke to him a couple of weeks ago and I think he's hoping to get a more permanent residence um, sorted out over the next couple of weeks. And Jules Thomas herself, she has she has featured in, in the, the investigation. What What's... What's her position been over the year? Yeah, she was arrested as well um, and again released without charge. She took grave exception to elements of the statement that was sent to her by the Gardaí after her first arrest and her solicitor immediately wrote back challenging elements of that statement saying there were things in it that she did not agree with and that she did not accept that she had said. Um, she has consistently um, supported the sequence of events that Mr. Bailey has said in that the two of them were out on the evening of the 22nd. They returned together to the property at the Prairie. Mr. Bailey sat up in a room in the property to work on a freelance story. She went to bed and as far as she was concerned, to the best of her knowledge, he never left the house that evening. And the work that he had spoken about was finished by the typewriter or by the table when she got up the following morning. One of the reasons why I suppose the guards originally looked at Mr. Bailey was that there were markings seen on his face and on his arms. Now, he explained those are the fact that to make a bit of extra money, they would raise and slaughter turkeys for Christmas. And he said in the process of doing that, the claws of the turkeys had actually marked him. And as well, what he had also done was to have their own fashioned Christmas tree. He had climbed a nearby evergreen to take the top off the tree and to decorate it and use it as a Christmas tree. And in the process of doing that, he had given himself a lot of scratches and scrapes. That's how he explained the markings. But obviously, in the context of an investigation like this, any, mar any markings like that for someone who was in the area or in that general vicinity would be of greater interest to the Gardaí. Tell us about Mary Farrell. This investigation had become quite unusual given the colourful nature of some of the, the key figures involved in it and it got even more colourful uh, on the basis of Mary Farrell. Marie Farrell was originally from the west of Ireland. She had lived and worked with her husband for some time in London in the UK and they relocated back to West Cork and they were running a shop and a couple of business premises in the Greater Skull area. And how she came to attention was the Gardaí had received a couple of phone calls, anonymous phone calls, uh, offering them information. Of course, the guards had issued a major appeal for assistance for their murder investigation in the days after Sophie's death. And one of the contexts they got was this anonymous phone call uh, from a person who claimed that they saw an individual at Cale Fodder Bridge uh, on the evening, early hours of December the 23rd. And why the guards were particularly interested in that is that is pretty much the route that a person would have used if they were going to or coming from Sophie's house. So they received another anonymous phone call. In this stage, they were working with Telecom Aaron as it was then. It later became Aircom. And they were able to trace the call. And the caller turned out to be Marie Farrell. So Marie Farrell was visited by the Gardaí and a number of different statements were taken from her because the Gardaí wanted a description of this individual that was seen at Cale Bridge. And why it's very important is that, first of all, if you look at the, the statements that Marie Farrell gave, the height of the person she saw steadily increases with each statement until you're talking about a person who is six foot two, six foot three, which is roughly the height that Ian Bailey was. Her original statement was that this person was around five foot ten ish, which would be very difficult to confuse someone of that height with someone whose height really is one of his trademarks, as it is with Ian Bailey. 
And then, of course, her statement was central to the Garda case that went to the DPP. And the DPP made the decision that they had reliability concerns about this particular witness because of the variance in terms of the specific details of the statements. And that turned out to be quite prescient given what happened because in 2003 in the libel action, Marie Farrell was described as the star witness. Um, Her testimony uh, before Cork Circuit Civil Court was absolutely devastating for Ian Bailey. And I don't think there's any question but that it was central to him losing those actions. And then two years later, she recanted, quite incredibly, she recanted that evidence She said that she had only made those statements because she had been put under duress by the guardie and that Ian Bailey was not the individual that she had seen. And of course, Marie Farrell became even more under the spotlight in Ian Bailey's action before the High Court for wrongful arrest because her evidence there was again quite at variance with some of the previous statements. And when her evidence concluded, the actual hearing judge directed that a transcript of her evidence be given to the DPP after he had formally warned her about um, the dangers of um, perjury. Marie Farrell, where, where is she now? She's gone from West Cork. Um, Marie Farrell was back in, in the west of Ireland, she just moved out of the area with her family. And she was actually gone from West Cork before the High Court action for, for wrongful arrest that was taken by Mr. Bailey. A couple of other people who central to, to this whole, whole case, Sophie Toscan, the Prontier's neighbours, Shirley Foster uh, and Alfie Lyons. Yeah, Shirley Foster was was in the property that evening mm-hmm. um, when Sophie was killed just a couple of hundred metres away. Um, had Sophie turned uphill, obviously she couldn't, for some, or killer might have been between her and the house, but had she turned uphill, it's to Sophie's house she would have gone. And or to Shirley's, Shirley's house, yeah. I should have said. And it was Shirley Lyons that discovered the body. Shirley was on her way to do some last minute Christmas shopping. When she came to the bottom of the hill in front of her house, she was about to turn left and she looked and she saw what she thought was a bundle of torn clothing. And to her horror, she discovered that it was actually the body of her French neighbour and she raised the alarm. Uh, so um, essentially she had put her house on the market earlier this year and has moved out of the area as well. The home, Sophie's home itself, it's it's still owned by her son, Pierre-Louis. Yeah, there was a lot of um, speculation that I suppose particularly during the Gashon investigation, um, there were French police had visited West Cork on a number of occasions. It got a very high profile in France leading up to the the May 2019 prosecution. Uh, The belief was that that Pierre-Louis Baudet would sell the property. But I think over time, he changed his mind. Um, He's at great pains to say the property is not a shrine to his mother but it is left pretty much exactly as she owned it back in December of of 96. Um, He holidays there almost every summer with his family. And it's quite poignant to note that his eldest daughter is called Sophie in honour of her grandmother. Twenty-five year anniversary now of of Sophie Toscan Duplantia's murder. Will there be memorials and commemorations to to mark that event? 
there will there'll be what what used to happen Fanon over the years was that uh, Sophie's parents George and Marguerite Buniol um, lovely people they would travel with um, Sophie's aunt Marie Madeleine Opalka and uh, her uncle Jean-Pierre Gazot uh, sometimes Bertrand Buniol as well Sophie's brother they would they would travel and they would lay a wreath of white lilies which was Sophie's favourite flower uh, at the spot where her body was discovered there is now a Celtic uh, stone cross inscribed with the simple word Sophie and they would lay a wreath of white lilies at the spot and then they would go to Mass in Goline and after every um, Mass there would be an appeal via Marie Madeleine who spoke flawless English um, for anyone with information to come forward and to honour Sophie's memory by seeing her killer brought to justice and it has been very difficult because they are lovely people I mean they have never it would have been very easy for them to speak ill of Ireland they never have and they've adopted a very Christian view to um, the country and what happened but they still want justice for Sophie they want her killer held to account they're too old and too frail to travel so what happens now is there's a private ceremony each year in Paris um, for Sophie it's not open to the media uh, but what is happening in West Cork this year is Sophie's fam- uh, friends and neighbours are going to have a small ceremony they're going to lay wreaths at the spot where uh, the body was discovered and say prayers in one of the local churches One set of visitors to that that location, that is uh, effectively a shrine to the memory of a woman who who was battered to death, are are what one would term murder tourists. Who locals are saying kind of show a bit of respect really to a to a deceased woman here. And I think people in West Cork are very sensitive because no one wants their area known for this awful event, and particularly given the fact that no one has been held to account for what happened. But given the level of publicity that, I mean, as you said, two major documentaries, one on Sky, one on Netflix, there's been five different books, there's been an awful lot of media interest because of the ongoing developments, news developments in the case. As we spoke about earlier, there's the potential of a cold case review. You have some of Ireland's most veteran murder murder case detectives in West Cork as we speak, looking at evidence. But what people were very much taken aback by is that people would visit the scene And it's just the behaviour of people when they're there. If people called to say a prayer or just to view it, it's one thing. But I think people were were taking selfies of each other. They were doing videos of themselves by the cross, videos of themselves with the house in the background. Some of them were going up and peering in the windows of the house, of course, which is private property, and then doing videos of themselves and selfies, walking the route that Sophie would have walked um, to her death, which is, I mean, to put it very mildly, is in a very bad taste. And I mean, it is, it is very important to say that this is, they are a lovely family. I mean, they have been nothing but courteous and kind over the years to reporters, to photographers, to anybody from Ireland. And really, it is, I think if anyone is thinking about this case over the coming days, it's really Sophie's family should be front and centre because 25 years on, they're still looking for justice. And that was Ralph Regal. I'm Fiannan Shane, and today's podcast was produced by Mary Carroll, recorded by Gavin Hennessy, with sound designed by John Smith. You can listen to the Indo Daily wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs>